It's a fascinating refrain. Turn your attention to it just a moment. You don't have to just listen. How great is our God. Sing with me. How great is our God. All will see how great, how great is our God. It's interesting, isn't it? We think about singing. We, we expect that the second expression will be all will hear. How do we sing in such a way that the world will see how great is our God? A hint comes from our Chinese brothers and sisters who learn almost immediately upon conversion that you will be imprisoned for your faith. And when you are imprisoned for your faith, you will sing in your cell, and all the world will see how great is your God. It's what they call prison theology. It's the first course of discipleship of those who would follow Jesus. Today, we'll be looking at Isaiah uh, chapter 65 as we begin to um, round the bend into the last couple uh, portions of Isaiah. Remember that Isaiah's ministry was begun, was launched when he went into the temple and beheld the glory of the thrice holy God, holy, holy, holy God. And that immediately exposed himself to himself. And in that condition, the Lord came to him, the Lord purged him, the Lord equipped him, the Lord commissioned him. And so the rest of the book of Isaiah recounts or records for us Isaiah's ministry to make the glory of God known among, the, among God's people in Israel. The first half of the ministry establishes the fact that Israel is a stubbornly faithless and so rebellious people. The second half of the book establishes the fact that our God is great and stunning and mind-bending and soul-bending in His dogged, steadfast commitment to His promises and to His people. And so the question we have been considering in the last several weeks is how will such a God make peace with such a people? How will God make peace with a notoriously stubborn people for a world at war, for a world at war with Him without compromising the justice and the mercy of His character? You keep in mind that the promise to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 was a promise to Abraham for the nations. It was to Abraham and to his offspring that they might be a blessing to the nations. But from the get-go, the people of the promise proved unfaithful to the promise. Abraham, in the next chapter finds himself in Egypt lying about who he is and who Sarah is. 
And so the question from throughout Israel's history is this, how would a God who made this promise fulfill this promise with such a people without compromising his character? And in the answer to that question is the good news that we celebrate today, the good news of the birth of Jesus Christ. So read with me. Isaiah chapter 65, we're not going to read the whole thing. We'll read through verse 8 and then we will skip. Isaiah chapter 65. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good following their own devices. A people who provoke me to my face continually sacrificing in gardens, making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat. And broth of tainted meat is in their vessels. Who say... Keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is blessing in it, so I will do for my servants' sake, and not destroy them all. Skip with me now to verse 17. For behold... I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people. My chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call... I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Some jarring words, but all of it together is the good news of our loving Father to us, His people. So let's go to Him in prayer. 
And so, Father, we come because you have made a promise and you are doggedly committed to fulfilling it even to perfect completion in us and among us and through us throughout your world. And so, Father, by the very same Spirit with, by which you have been meeting your people from, throughout this day, Father, we pray that you would meet with us. Grant us eyes to see your glory, ears to hear it, and hearts to rest and rejoice in it, that we may be changed by it. Protect us from error and feast us upon your truth, for we pray it as your children in Jesus. Amen. I think everyone in this room knows the game of hide and seek. We love the game, and the game is, has a multitude of variations, all the way from peekaboo when we're tiny, tiny, all the way to uh, kick the can. How many of you played kick the can when you were growing up? Isn't that a great game? I love that game. We, had a, um, we played kick the can, and we had this big neighborhood, and, um, and the boundaries were the yards of everyone who is playing and when you have 15 kids playing you know that's huge and um, I could never stand being it because how can you possibly find everyone in a in a playground that that is that big I liked to hide because nobody could ever find me When we apply the concepts of hide and seek to religion, however, <clears throat> we tend to get things mixed up a bit. We tend to think of God as the one who is hiding. There's a lot of literature like that, and it's true, it sometimes can feel that way. We tend to think that He is hiding and that we are the ones that are seeking Him and that are calling Him. Kind of like a cosmic version of Marco Polo. Marco! And sometimes we feel like God has actually just gotten out of the pool and is sunning himself by the side. Marco! But upon honest reflection, we should realize that in fact, God himself is the seeker, and he doesn't know that the game has ended, because it hasn't. God is, in fact, the seeker, and we are, in fact, steadfastly committed to hiding. Look in verse 1. There's a lot of debate about how to interpret these first several verses. Listen to this. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me, ready to be found by those who did not seek me. Most commentators will agree that that description at no time in Israel's history describes Israel. And so most commentators believe that verse 1 is referring to, the, to God and to his servant speaking to, about the nations, to a people who had no interest in the creator God known 
among the Israelites as Yahweh. We get that. We know people like that. We know nations like that. They, they don't, they're not interested in asking for God. They're not interested in seeking Him. He says, here I am, here I am, to nations that are not called by His name. It's worth noting that we hear another here I am at the very beginning of Isaiah's ministry. Here I am, here I am. But that raises the question then, how will he be found by a people who are not asking for him? How will he be found by a people who are not seeking for him? He has to behave, <clears throat> excuse me, he has to behave in such a way as to garner their attention. He has to act in such a way as to captivate their attention. Similar to Moses out with the sheep, out with the flocks, and he sees a strange sight, a burning bush that is not consumed. And it absolutely captivates his attention, and he is drawn to it so that the Lord may meet him there and speak to him. Similarly, there is this situation where the, there is this presumed, there's this presumed situation lying in the background here where, where the servant, as the speaker here says, how is it, how must I act in order to captivate the attention of a people who are not looking for me or asking for me? And that leads us to his answer. It's beginning in verse 2. God's mission strategy. God's mission strategy is to exercise the rule of his loving faithfulness among an offensively faithless people, a notoriously faithless people. I spread out, so I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. Rebellion, there has to be a notion of a pre-existing relationship in order to rebel against it. Verse 3, a people, therefore, who provoke me continually to my face. When this speaks of sacrificing in garden, making offerings on bricks, sitting in tombs, spending the night in secret places, eating pig's flesh, even we would get that as being offensive for God's people. The broth of tainted meat in their, uh, in their vessels, their sense of I am holy and you are not divisions in the ranks. What they are referring to is practices that were common among the Canaanite religions. It's important to note, he says there, um, the end of verse 5, these are smoke in my nostrils. You ever been around a campfire and uh, the, the, the wind blows and you just get this puff of smoke in your eyes and in your nostrils? And what do you do? You just cringe. 
you jump back because it's, this stings. It's offensive. And of course, me being the good-looking guy that I am, and I move around the other side of the campfire, it follows me, you know. That's how the expression goes. And so um, it's a service to you if you're, if you're with me around the campfire. It's offensive. It's ugly. It stings. And this is what God is, this is what the servant, this is what God is saying when I see all of these things. This is an offense. It stings my nostrils. It causes me to cringe. It's important to take a moment here to, to reflect on what it is that is so offensive here to the servant. This offensive faithlessness of his people. The activities, as I've already noted, are clear references to clear participation, and we know from other places, in Canaanite religious practices. Practices that had been clearly and repeatedly forbidden. So why would the people do this? And this is important to stop and reflect. Why would God's people, remember the people that had been rescued out of Egypt, the people who knew about the Red Sea, the people who knew about men in the wilderness, the people who knew about water from the rock, the people who saw the thunder and the lightning on Mount Sinai? Why, when they get into the promised land, would they repeatedly and more and more deeply enter into the religious practices of the Canaanites? Silly people, bad people, forgetful people. Why would they do that? I find the Spirit nudging me more and more and more to not be too quick to judge the Israelites. Because the more I reflect, on the heart and the mind of the Israelites, the more I recognize the patterns of my own heart. You see, <clears throat> daily life and religion were not carefully compartmentalized in the ancient heart and mind, which is itself an interesting expression, heart and mind. That, that expression itself would not have made any sense to the ancient world. But in any case, daily life and religion were not carefully compartmentalized in the ancient heart as it is in our own Western European Enlightenment world. We are Canaanites. This is who we are. This is what we do. It's part of our life. It's part of our culture. It's just who we are. You must respect that. And so to speak anachronistically, forgive me for using a big word, <clears throat> to take today's categories and thought patterns and to impose them on the ancient world for a moment, imagine how an Israelite might, might justify to us his or her participation in these activities. A sincere, believing, Yahweh-following Israelite, how might he justify his participation in Canaanite religious practices? And it might go something like this. I just want to live at 
peace with my neighbor. I want to love my neighbor. I want to connect with my neighbor. I want to make sense to my neighbor. How else will they know that Yahweh loves them? I have to embody for them the truths of Yahweh. Does that begin to sound familiar? And so what happens is that in an effort to connect with their Canaanites, they actually commit adultery with Yahweh. They actually turn their back on Yahweh. Now, it's a strange thing that the prophets call this behavior faithless rebellion. But they don't understand it as faithless rebellion. They're quite sincere. But sincerity does not diminish its fatality. Think about the many ways that we allow our own theology and practices of the Christian life to be shaped by the values and norms of our culture because we want to connect with, we want to make sense to our neighbors. Brothers and sisters, we're seeing it all the time in our own lives, never mind in the literature that abounds. Think about the one example that comes up regularly throughout Scripture. Now, we have been so shaped by our culture that this is probably the last example that any of you are thinking of right now. And yet, there's a reason that it figures so prominently throughout the Scripture, and that is the practice of the Sabbath day. Honoring the Lord's day. Because it doesn't make sense to our culture's values. Why would you do something like that? Well, because our God reigns is why we would do something like that. His wisdom rules is why we would do something like that. His patterns for flourishing life in this world is why we would do something like that. You see. Uh, think about... Think about how strange we think of folks who try to who seek to live in conformity, however they might understand it, and whatever we however we might evaluate it. <clears throat> how strange we think of folks who seek to live in conformity with how they understand the gospel reign of Jesus Christ. Head coverings, anyone? It's not absurdity and foolishness. Whatever else we might think, it's a passionate, deeply abiding desire to walk in obedience. You see, even the nations were surprised. <laughs> by how Israel habitually and repeatedly sought to supplement and substitute its God with the gods of the nations. Israel, Isaiah had said earlier, even the nations are stunned. Take a look around you. Do you know any nation who, is, who has turned their back on their gods in order to supplement their gods with the gods of other nations? No. But Israel does. 
What in the world? Even the nations are stunned by that. Even the nations know what Israel herself does not know, that she has turned her back on her Yahweh. Even today, think about it. The discussion regarding whether the discussion regarding hypocrisy in the church, whether we deserve it or not, let's leave that aside for the moment. But the world's most common accusation of and objection to the church is that we have a reputation for self-righteous hypocrisy. It's flagrant from the world's perspective. They all know it. It's a foregone conclusion. Our faithless inconsistency is obvious to the watching world. We individually or in this congregation, we may or may not be a part of the reason for that reputation. Uh, Like I said, let's leave that aside for right now. But that Christians, at least in North America, have such a reputation is simply undeniable. The nations looked and they saw, Israel, wait a minute. What are you doing? Even by our standards of wisdom, you just don't act that way. Which is why the nations are even more stunned that, nonetheless, their God did not abandon them or destroy them, but remains faithful to them. That's more scandalous than the sin of the Israelites to the nations. What kind of crazy God does that, putting up with a people such as that? Which is where we go. Verse 8, thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, there is blessing in it, so I will do for my servants' sake, and not destroy them all. That is the craziest thing that we can hear. The image there is of the first fruits. And so the the, uh, grapes are on the vine and they are so plump and they're so full that they are oozing. And so there was this understanding that you take that which is naturally oozing out and you save it because that is the sweetest part of the wine. And so the Lord says, in just that way, I will not destroy it, but I will save it. He goes on to describe it. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of the mountains. My chosen shall possess it. My servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture. The valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down and for my people who have sought me. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine, going back to some of these practices, I will destine you to the sword. Verses 8 and 10 reveal to us God's merciful faithfulness to a rebellious few. That is to say, to a few of the rebellious. Notice this. It's not because they are not just as rebellious as the others. 
And it's not because they recognize their rebellion, much less have repented from it. Why would God behave this way? Verse 8. So I will do for my servant's sake. In other words, here we have the, a key um, turning point or a key by which to understand the place of the promised servant in the purposes of a holy God. There's something going on between the God who anoints and appoints the servant and the servant himself. There's some sort of special arrangement, special connection by which the servant himself is able to, 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 rent, to save a remnant from among those who everyone agrees ought to be destroyed. For my servant's sake, God loves his people the same way we love one another by fixing his eyes on Christ. At first glance, this may seem disappointing. After all, aren't we the apple of his eye? Well, no. We're not. I hope that that doesn't scare you. Christ is the apple of his eye. <clears throat> he acts for Christ's sake. He is the apple of his eye. But that's good news for us. Because when he is the apple of the Father's eye, the benefits ooze out of the grapes naturally and accrue to us. Christ is the apple of his eyes and all the benefits of that single-minded love for his son accrue to us. That's the dynamic that we see playing out in the upper room discourse in John, beginning in John chapter 13. Because Jesus knew the Father, he got up from the table and served the disciples. In the same way, when all of our own heart, mind, and soul, and strength are fixed with single-minded tenacity upon Christ, we are helplessly compelled to holy lives of loving obedience. Brothers and sisters, what I'm describing here is the scandal that we see on almost every page of Scripture. It's the scandal of the prodigal son. No self-respecting or reasonable father in the day would have received back his son the way that father did. At best, the father would not have killed him. But in this case, the father hikes up his skirts and he, and he bears all shame and he runs down the road and he interrupts his son's explanation and embraces him and calls for a celebration. No self-respecting father would do that. Just as no self-respecting God would love a people such as us. This is the message of Jesus' scandalous habit of dining with sinners and tax collectors. Why? Because that's who I am. That's what I do. I'm God. That's the glory of our God. The glory of his faithfulness. 
That's what God promised to do, and in Jesus Christ, that is what he is doing. This is the stunning scandal of Isaiah's own story. Recognizing his own sin, he cries out quite reasonably, Woe is me! Why? Because the natural, common, and so expected response of a holy God to Isaiah's self-realization is to absolutely destroy Isaiah. That's what holiness does in the face of sin. And corruption. The realization of our sin in the presence of a holy God ought to make us nervous. Unless we know the glory of this holy God. The glory of this God's holiness. Unless we know how this holy, holy, holy God responds to our stubbornly unclean condition. He deals with it. He purges it. He cleanses it. He transforms it. He uses it. He sends it. It becomes, his response becomes the trumpet of his glory. To captivate the attention of the nations. Now we can observe in the broadest outlines the pattern of Isaiah's ministry. On the two outer edges of that ministry, we see the mind-bending response of a holy God to a profoundly sinful people. And in the very heart, Isaiah chapter 39 and 40, in the very heart of the ministry, we come to understand why. What's the explanation for that? It makes no sense. But it is the double comfort of this God's holiness. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. From beginning to end, the comfort and the hope in Israel's religion is not that we are less sinful than the nations. It is not that we are the objects of his love, though that is true. Our hope and our comfort is in who he shows himself to be in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Day after day, Week after week. And so verse 11, excuse me, verse, beginning with verse 13, there is a visible difference. When this God manifests that glory, it creates a physical difference. My servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. My servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. My servants shall rejoice, but you will be put to shame. My servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart. The difference is not between Israel and the nations. The difference is between belief and unbelief. The difference is between faithfulness and faithlessness. It's a difference that cuts across all kinds of people, Jew and Gentile alike, men and women alike, adult and child alike. Which, of course, is exactly what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 2. The result of God's revelation of glory in Jesus Christ is a marked contrast, the outlines of which reveal to a watching world the justice and mercy of our holy God. 
Because you see, the difference has nothing to do with these people themselves and everything to do with the mighty acts of God's own mercy. He is the potter and we are the clay. Which is, of course, the theme that Paul develops in Romans chapter 9. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, what, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out, make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? The right of the potter is the glory of the potter. And so Paul concludes, so then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It is by this mercy of God that we are who we are. It is by this mercy of God that our lives are marked by his mercy. That is, our lives bear living evidence of increasing holiness. Because that is the result and that is the fruit of his mercy. And it is in this way, in this way, by this method, that he begins the work of creating a new heavens and a new earth. That's really, really good news. Because, brothers and sisters, it does not depend upon you and I getting it. It depends on the mighty acts of his mercy, day after day after day. Moms, it does not depend upon you getting it right, but upon his mercy. Dads, it does not depend upon you getting it right, but upon his mercy. Men and women, it does not depend upon you getting it right at work or at school or in your neighborhood. It depends upon his mercy the mighty acts of his mercy. That was Isaiah's hope. The man of unclean lips is the mighty act of God's mercy to come to him from the altar and to purge his lips. Brothers and sisters, we are created and redeemed by God's mercy to be different because our difference shaped by his mercy is what demonstrates not only that our God reigns, but how our God reigns in such a way that the watching world passes by and their attention is captivated. What kind of God delights to join such a people at his table? And the explanation, the reason for that hope which is in us is our God. Born, living, suffering, dying, raise, rising again. Jesus of Nazareth. Emmanuel, God with us. So Father God, fix our eyes upon the wonder of that love. Stun us by it. Captivate us anew by it. Cause us to weep with rejoicing as we come to this, your table, knowing that we are notorious for our faithlessness, but resting in the knowledge that we have through Jesus Christ that you are glorious in your steadfast mercy and faithfulness. Cause us to taste that, to see it, to savor it, to rejoice in it. We pray it as your children in Jesus.